just Tanner here with the solo episode, which is something new that Rick and I are going to be trying out from time to time going forward. And today I'm going to tell you a very personal story that's been on my mind a lot lately, but a few quick thoughts before we begin. So for starters, you're kind of being dropped into the middle of a much larger story that will you know, maybe be expanded on in future episodes. But the context around it isn't that important. What is important to note is that I'm dealing with the intimate details of another man's life who uh, doesn't know I'm doing this, who I haven't spoken to in years. And throughout the process, I've been a little uneasy about some of the foggier aspects of the story. And, you know, I am you know, somewhat concerned about accuracy, but there is there, there won't be any way to identify him. So a lot of what I'm going to say is from memory. Um, I'm mostly going to be reading off this story, but, you know, that, that story is written mostly from memory, which is not only imperfect on a good day, but I'm recalling memories from what I would consider to be the worst time of my life while I was in the middle of a, a mental breakdown and, and was committed, uh, committed myself. And, you know, point is that not only was this almost five years ago, but things were extremely intense and unpleasant during this period, which I imagine has affected how I remember them, what I remember, um, but I, I can certainly say that to the best of my ability, most of the details are honest. Um, some of those details are extremely clear. Some of them are me filling in the blanks. And I've worked heavily off journals that were written during this time period or soon after, which are certainly, I think, much more reliable. But surely I am getting some of the details wrong in this story. Perhaps I'm getting even some of the bigger picture wrong. Uh, there's no way I could ever possibly know at this point. However, I've made an effort to like, not sensationalize anything just for the sake of the, the narrative. So with that out of the way, this is the story of my short relationship with a man named Jeff, a man who lived across the hall from me uh, while I was in the psych ward. And this story was sometime in early March of 2018. I got in kind of late via ambulance. I don't remember the time exactly. And I don't remember much of the intake process, but I, I remember getting off the gurney and the paramedics handing the staff there a plastic bag of my belongings, my belt, wallet, phone, and, and whatnot. And I went through an intake process that was extremely vague. Um, and after that, I was taken to the rec room and given someone's leftover lunch in this little styrofoam container. And I used the metaphor I kind of feel weird about it. I, I use the metaphor of prison a lot when I describe my short time at the, the inpatient facility. And, but despite feeling weird about it, I, I still do it as it seems to fit in a lot of ways. And I'm, I'm certainly not alone in drawing this comparison. My introduction to the other people there kind of 
played out much like the the tv and movie tropes you see when a character enters their first day inside i remember sizing up the the other patients and, and they were sizing me up and you know i had no long no idea how long anyone had been there or, or who they were or, you know how, how crazy were they um and it was late but the the rec room was always really brightly lit by this like cheap fluorescent green lights and there were probably five or six other patients roaming around throughout my five day stay i don't think they ever switched the channel in the rec room um, away from the fx network which always played at this extremely loud volume for some reason and at this point terminator 5 was playing and there were two or three people sitting apart from each other and just kind of staring at the screen silently i remember the trailer for uh, steven soderbergh's iphone movie unsane playing while i was there and kind of thinking that was quietly hilarious while i was eating my dinner and i probably saw that trailer no less than two dozen times uh, before being discharged and it will always be funny to me the the notion of this trailer for a psychological thriller about a woman who loses her mind inside of a psych ward playing at an extremely loud volume to, to a bunch of patients um, that it will always be funny but, but so anyway i was i was encouraged to hurry up and, and finish my dinner by one of the staff members monitoring the area so that they could show me my room and like I can remember the meal so vividly. It was this cold tray of mashed potatoes, uh, carrots, and meatloaf that was slathered in mushrooms. And I, I have always hated mushrooms my entire life, but I didn't eat the entire time I was in the ER, so I didn't care. I just kind of slid them to the side and uh, went to town on the meatloaf. And at some point while I was eating there silently, uh, a young black girl named Exrina, she kind of walks by and she goes and uses the uh, the phone in the rec room and uh, very early on in her call she looks directly at me while she's on the phone with whomever and says uh, a cute white boy just got here and she was talking into the phone but she looked straight at me and she wanted to make sure that I'd heard it and I, th I thought it was kind of a, a nice funny gesture but I have I I ignored her um, and yet I knew that I'd have to make friends with some of the patients to kind of figure out how this place worked because I, I didn't get much information from any of the staff, not anything useful anyway. And, you know, aside from being told that there will be a popcorn and juice snack at 8 p.m. that I can come back to the rec room for, but I don't come back for it. I instead stayed in my room the rest of the night and just stared at the intake paperwork trying to make sense of it. I still have some of the paperwork. Uh, on me. I wish I had kept all of it, but at some point I had gotten rid of a bunch of this stuff wanting to kind of put it behind me. Um, but I remember thinking that it was it was outdated. The, the paper, all the papers I'd received, they'd been photocopied uh, multiple times. This place, I realized very early on that it was incredibly understaffed, underfunded, dirty, and I, like, like I said, I had no idea what I was supposed to be doing or how this was all supposed to help me. And I remember kind of like as a, as a joke, I looked around the room for ways that I could kill myself. Not that I wanted to anymore, but because this place supposedly suicide proof and I was kind of up for this hypothetical challenge. But to my surprise, it was, they were actually pretty thorough. I was placed in the, the nonviolent ward, which was shaped like an L with the, the nurse's station kind of at the bend point. And the rec room was down at one end um, of the hallway and my room was all the way down at the other. And 
in between, I would guess there's probably 30 to 40 patients uh, in between most of them um, with a shared room. I was lucky enough that I did not have anyone else in my room. Um, but it was, it was getting late and I sat there, you know, kind of looking at the paperwork and writing a little bit with my door open, hoping that someone would come in. But then the lights went out in the hallway, which I took as a sign that I wasn't going to be getting any kind of like uh, formal orientation, I guess. And so I wandered out into the dark hallway and immediately a nurse is coming out of another room and she scolds me for, for not wearing socks, which I, I take to mean the you know, classic psych ward grippy socks that came in my little uh, welcome bag. But before I return to my room, this voice comes from the room across the hall from me um, and just says, yeah, they don't like it when you don't wear socks. And this was the voice of Jeff, you know, even though he was kind of scraggly and he was wearing the same like hideous patient gown I was, there was a kind of like warmth to him. I think mostly coming from his voice. He didn't, you know, he didn't look warm. Um, he was middle-aged white man with a round head and a, a portly body. And actually I wrote in my journal that night, described him as the classic bear physique. Um, yeah, I was most everyone that I had encountered at this point, you know, presented me with either a phony smile and talked down to me, uh, or they looked extremely exhausted and, and couldn't care less about me. But Jeff had a, a sort of like neutral welcoming affect you know he walked out confidently and introduced himself and i remember his voice didn't waver at all he didn't seem like embarrassed or shy um, about the situation you know and his delivery about the socks indicated to me that he was that he knew his way around this place i'd find out later that this was also his first night here but he'd spent time in just about every psych ward between south chicago and evanston so he certainly knew his way around the block which I'm relieved by. And so I immediately dumped my frustrations onto him. You know, how the hell does this work? I asked him. And he must have thought that I was referring to the short line of patients at the nurse's station down the hall because he didn't take in the, the grandness of my question and just said, oh, if you can't sleep, you just go ask the nurses and they'll give you something. They'll give you clonopin if you ask for it. And, you know, I'd been awake for two days at this point, had no concern about sleeping, but that sounded like fun. So we both walked over got clonic pin from the nurse. Uh, it was surprisingly easy. And, you know, as we're walking back down the hallway to our rooms, I reinstated my question more specifically. I say, you know, no, it's so like, how, how does this work? Like this whole place, like, what do we do? I just came from the ER because I was planning on killing myself. Like what happens next? And he started to tell me about the schedule and what time breakfast is and when quiet hours are and whatnot, but he didn't get very far. Um, a staff member down the hall yelled at us to, to get back in our rooms. Um, I think Jeff and I shook hands and I went back into my room to try and sleep. The next morning I made sure to find Jeff and sit with him at breakfast. Um, he was at a table of four and we were joined by Exrina from the night before and she stared at me the entire time I ate and uh, we were also joined by a woman who I'd mistook for a staff member the previous night due to her being in civilian clothes. Uh, Christine was her name, and she had psoriasis all over the outside of her face and hairline, and she was constantly scratching at her hair. And apropos of nothing out of nowhere, she says to me, is Sarah your girlfriend? And I was I was confused, you know, like, how did she know who Sarah was? Uh, Sarah was my best friend at the time. Um, 
but I, I didn't know what the hell she was talking about. Is she talking, you know, about Sarah, Sarah? Well, apparently Sarah had called the night before after I'd gone to bed and got through to the rec room somehow where Christine answered the phone and they <laughs> talked for a while, apparently. And this was especially a, f a funny sign of, of things to come, given that the, the one part of my intake process that was explicit and that I do remember was the, the guarantee that my stay there was private and that people would need a password of my choosing to to get through to me on the phone line. But then um, Sarah didn't have this password and I, you know, she knew I was at UIC, but that was that was it. And um, here she was able to, to get through to the rec room, I guess. I remember being disenchanted by Jeff's affect that morning because he was completely sullen at breakfast. You know, the friendly guy from the night before was completely gone. And, you know, he went back to his room and slept immediately after he'd finished, uh, which I just kind of chalked up to him still being groggy from the, the clonopin the night before. I started to pick up on a sort of like patient to patient support system that, that functioned in the hospital. You know, in addition to taking calls and messages from one another, patients shared food, gossip, and you know, offered a, a social outlet for each other. And I played my part when I realized that Jeff is still asleep by the time lunch comes around. And so I go into his room and I wake him. And you know, he was much more lively when we sat down to eat lunch in the rec room, but still not quite like he was the night before in the hallway, uh, but more social nonetheless. Exrina, Christine, and Manuel join us, and we all kind of do the what are you in for routine. And Christine said something vague about, oh, I know someone here, and I didn't dare interrogate this bizarre response. Uh, Manuel was picked up by police off the highway near O'Hare, where he was wandering, completely fucked up on Xandex. He, he was flying to Detroit from L.A. to see his father, who was on his deathbed, and was too fucked up to remember he was supposed to switch to a connecting flight. And so he just left the airport without his luggage aimlessly, thinking that he was in Detroit. Uh, Exrina is, I guess I would describe as an absolute just dynamite of a, a person. And, she, you know, as, as an example, she ignored the question altogether and responds with saying that she's married to a preacher's son and wants to make sure that we all know she isn't a, a Jordan hoe, which is a term that I'd never heard of before. And I didn't ask what it is, but I'm glad that Manuel does so that she can tell us that it's someone who has sex for Air Jordans. Jeff and I found ourselves alone sometime later and only then did he answer the question from lunch. He told me an awful story that I'll never forget that sheds some light on the, the somber side he's been showing. And it made me question whether or not my own situation was, was really that serious. Um, so he, Jeff was fresh from dick surgery and you know, he still had the stitches uh, on his dick, in fact. He'd had to have surgery just a few floors below us because he had an erection that lasted for four straight days. And according to Jeff, he was not told prior to the surgery that he would never be able to have kids after whatever this procedure was. Uh, or maybe there was a mishap, I, I don't really know, but he was devastated as it is the only thing he's ever wanted in his life. Um, but to be honest, you know, as he shared more and more with me, I don't think having a family was probably in his future anyway. You know, Jeff was currently in a legal battle with his siblings over their mother's estate, uh, which he had been looking after since he was 18 when their father hung himself. So 
his mother was chronically ill with something and he spent like all of his early adult years looking after her. He never worked a job, never had a girlfriend, never really made friends, never, you know, really lived in a sense. He just took care of his mother um, most of his adult life. And the siblings had so far been successful in taking the house from him. And they were in the process of securing financial assets left behind. And he'd been living in a rough halfway house in Kankakee or Joliet um, for a while now, uh, up until this boner incident anyway. And, you know, it was never made clear to me why there was so much hostility between his siblings uh, and him. And I, I wonder about it often. At some point, Jeff told me that he was 35, but this didn't add up with the, the birth year I'd gleaned from the patient tag on his breakfast tray. And to this day, I find it to be a very curious lie. Um, why would someone who was so forthcoming about the sad life he'd lived lie about their age and only give him a couple, uh, give himself a couple years, no less, if Jeff was, was 39. Um, but for the most part, I, I take the things that Jeff told me to be uh, very honest. It's hard to keep track of the chronology of my journals and my memory as there are no dates on either of them. But at some point after all this or before, in between, the small group of myself, Christine, Manuel, and Jeff were up late in the rec room while Transformers 4 was playing on FX. We'd formed a small clique together, Exrina being a kind of like chaotic fringe fifth wheel who would come and go. For the first time, things became very loose and we conversed with one another about our lives outside that place. We shared stories about partying, drugs, sex, and relationships. And the further we drift into this territory, the more Jeff becomes kind of silent and, and awkward. I was hypersensitive to him, and I think I noticed him muttering to himself. Surely a 39-year-old virgin who's never touched alcohol or drugs felt pushed out by our conversation. But before I could divert the dialogue toward something he feels less alienated by, someone mentions anal sex, and Jeff gets up to leave. He passes by me closely and whispers very deliberately, I need to talk to you before you go to bed. And then he exits the room. I had no clue what this could be about. Jeff returned sometime a while later when Iron Man 2 was on and sat at a table by himself. After about five minutes, he motions for me to join him. I wrote in my journal that I was happy with this table choice as it was the only one in the facility that didn't have boogers on it. I waited eagerly and anxiously and just watched him as he kind of builds up the strength to say what he says. He scanned the room, looked back at the staff member monitoring us and leaned in over the table and whispers to me, what do you know about this thing in Oregon? And as soon as he said that, it hit me. I had completely fucked up. At some point during the evening's social gathering, I for some reason thought it was a good idea to talk about medically assisted suicide. And in that conversation, I talked about a documentary I'd seen a few years ago featuring participants of Oregon's state assisted suicide program and even voiced my positive support for it. I don't even know if this is true or not, but to deter him, I told him you need to be a resident, which it seemed to work as it kind of sadness fell over his face when I told him this. He stared at the television for a while and then turned back to me and says, well, do you have access to firearms? No, I don't, I say. And he then goes on to tell me that despite losing most of his inheritance in the settlement, he has $5,000 coming his way from his lawyer. You can have it, he says. Whether it's to buy a gun or whatever other method I can come up with, he tells me I can use the money to help him kill himself and keep what's left over. For a moment, I did actually you know, half fantasize about how much my life would actually benefit with an extra 5K in the bank before I tell him, you know, Jeff, they're not going to let me get a gun after being in here. You know, Illinois has really strict gun laws. 
I, I think that it was probably easier to focus on the practical reasons he can't go through with it as opposed to giving him some kind of hope about his future. If I'm being completely honest, if there was ever a man I've met in my life who would be totally justified in ending their life, it was Jeff. He had a very like business-like affect about the whole thing. And, you know, he doesn't say anything for a while and just kind of stares around the room and then says to me, well, if you can come up with something, it's all yours. And he slid a crumpled up piece of paper I didn't notice he'd been hiding under his hands. And he's out of the room before I could even open it. When I do, I find his full name and phone number written in green marker. I, I see a deep, like, unmet need in Jeff, and I, I desperately want to fulfill it for him. Like, like doing so will give me hope or, or better my odds that someone might come along and, and do the same for me. You know, at this point in my life, voicing my needs was not only difficult because I've been taught to, to hide those things, but also because putting words to this kind of like extreme and sometimes vague emotion was, like, was very elusive to me. You know, this abstract need that has always been neglected in me. It's, it's, it's something that I thought was easy to bury and hide, but then when it becomes apparent, it's like a, like a tiny hole being punctured through this illusion. And when that happens, I, you know, I panic and, and lose my mind, or at least I, I used to, um, things have, you know, balanced out in my favor, I think a lot more since then, but, you know, perhaps, a, another time we can, we can talk about that, but, you know, I panic and I, I would lose my mind. It's like my whole body is just kind of like balled up into my neck and I can feel my heart beating in there faster and faster. And, you know, because I don't have the words for it, I just, my, I panic exponentially. Uh, it's how I ended up there in the first place. And, you know, I, I think that I was trying to correct things after the fact by taking care of Jeff. You know, I, I give what I need. So the next day I snuck across a hall to his room before breakfast. And the first thing I notice is how bright his room is. His blinds are open and he can see outside, you know. <laughs> before I said what I came to say, I asked him, how the fuck did you get a room with blinds open? You know, the Venetian blinds are sandwiched between two layers of shatterproof glass and on every window on the ward, save for uh, this small opening near the rec room phone are, are closed. And you know, Jeff, this was like day three or four now, and Jeff has now shown me that there's a small knob on the bottom that's used to adjust the blinds, and I'm, I'm pissed that it, I've been there for so long and, and didn't know this. So anyway, I give what I need, and I told him that I'm refusing his $5,000 offer, but that I would like to help him. You know, I suggested I could help him get a job at Costco, and I don't know why I had Costco on the brain. You know, I think that I was beginning to realize that I couldn't go back to my job after all this, and would need an alternative when I got out, and that seemed like a, a decent enough place to work as any. Um, I provided an alternate future for him, and, and I, I told him that, you know, I'll do everything I can to help. And he told me he wouldn't be staying in the halfway house when he got out. He had, he'd had enough of that. He was he was bullied a lot there, and his things were stolen, and he said he'd, he'd rather be, be homeless. And I told him, I, you know, I can help you with that too. You know, if I just, I stopped short of, offering him my couch for for my sake jeff was deeply affected by this support and that made me uncomfortable for a couple reasons you know i think i have a hard time with people thanking me or complimenting me in general but when he told me it was the nicest thing anyone had ever done for him i thought that that was just so incredibly sad you know how is it that someone who's 39 
has never had something nicer done for them than you know another guy across the hall from him saying hey you know don't kill yourself um let me try and get you a job somewhere you know um i found that to be deeply disturbing when i went back into my room i immediately opened my blinds to look outside you know up until this point i had only a you know kind of vague sense of where i was having come in by ambulance at night um I, I can kind of position myself when I see a, a few blocks away. I recognize the, the construction happening at the back of Cook County Hospital. And even though I'm still kind of unsure, you know, where I am, um, I, I just a kind of extreme satisfaction in, in seeing something that I recognize outside of this place. And, you know, I kind of laugh to myself because I think it was only once the window uh, blinds were open that I noticed that there was someone had written in the dust uh, help us and help us bitch but we were all the way up on the eighth floor so there's no chance of anyone seeing it by the time I'm released a few days later Jeff and I had a plan in place and it took priority well above my own treatment plan uh, it went something like this I was to find him a few options for places to stay in the city uh, I would present those to him after he got out, and when we found something that worked, I was going to drive out to Joliet or, or Kankakee. And actually, I think it was Joliet. I was, I was to drive out to Joliet and get him from the halfway house. And once he got settled, we would look into job options. Uh, additionally, uh, the plan is that I'm going to film all of this. Me and the patients, um, you know, who I tried to start a revolt with, had decided to make a, a documentary together about. You know who fucking knows i was i was probably you know still high off the you know manic episode i was on but i i was just also really really angry about just the whole experience and um so i, I channeled it all into that and you know a lot of things happened in the week between then and when jeff got out my my brothers came to see me i told the girl i was seeing that i love her and i immediately regretted it uh, the psychiatrist from the hospital forgot to put my prescription in, which was, you know, the only reason they were letting me out was that I was going to be taking these meds. And I yelled at her on the phone. And when I told her I feel exactly the same way before I went into the hospital, which no shit, she threatened to have me recommitted. But all of this was secondary to the, you know, explosive documentary I thought I was going to make. I was I was really doing putting everything into it. I bought a a button camera from the spy store that I was going to use to film inside the halfway house that the more Jeff talked about it, the more it seemed like we were, we were breaking him out. So I, I was prepared for that, I guess. And, you know, a little over a week after I got out, I eventually got a hold of Jeff and part of the movie was I, I filmed the, this first phone call, um, which I'm going to play for, uh, I'm going to play some of it for you. The call was 17 minutes long, which I've, I've edited down for the, the sake of this show. Okay. 
Yeah, I have a, a physical in about an hour and 15 minutes, and then I have a class at 6. Okay, okay, so I hope your physical goes well. Okay, so how have you been doing since uh, we've seen each other? Um, I've been doing okay. Um, I, uh, my brothers were in town, and that was a little tricky, and, um, you know, it's nice to be home, but, um... You know, it's it's different every day, I guess. Okay. Yeah, well, um, unfortunately, uh, I found out while I was in the hospital that my either one my insurance is out of date and just needs to be uh, a new policy needs to be issued, which I'm gonna tackle this afternoon, or B they dropped me. Either way. Uh, I can't get any of my medicines from the pharmacy, and I'm, yeah, I'm just a nervous wreck right now without medication. Wow. Um, how long do you think it'll take for you to get your insurance sorted out? I don't know. You know, you know these customer service people on the phone, so I gotta talk to them when I'm done with you. Yeah. Well, hopefully it gets sorted away today, and you can just go pick that up. I mean, is it is it a process? Uh -oh. Let's hope so, yeah. <clears throat> Anything I can do for you in the meantime? Uh, no, you just being my friend is good enough. Um, I'm probably gonna come out, uh, early tomorrow morning. Yeah. You're still in Joliet? Yeah, I am. So anyway, so yeah, I, I, I'm literally, as I'm talking to you right now, just I spent the morning trying to figure out what I want to do, and you know, I just don't come up with any solution whatsoever. Um, and tomorrow you just want to go grab your stuff and get out? Uh, if they don't call the cops on me, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because once I announce to them that uh, it's because of them, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm so screwed up now, and you know, I'm deformed and physically deformed now and I feel worse than ever because of them they might say well you know that's no reason to leave and you can't leave and lock the doors behind me and if I attempt to leave call the police in that case I don't know what I'm going to do yeah I might just I might just start running so so that was the plan then you know as, as half-baked as it sound as um I was going to go and drive out there and um Put on my little button spy camera and get him out and bring him to the city and hope that some of the housing um, options I had looked up online would, would pan out um, and then we would take it from there. But something happened I, I can't quite recall and we got delayed and we ended up moving it to a couple days later. And so um, I have another phone call from a few days later that uh, I'm going to play some of for you as well. And pardon all the loud background noise on this one. I was living in a very noisy basement at the time. Hey, Jeff. Hey, Jenna, how are you? I'm okay, how are you? What's going on? I'm just crying my ass 
Well, I got therapy at 9. I figure I'd leave oh. here soon after that. Okay. Come get you. We'll go by the group home. Right? You got you got to grab stuff there? Yeah. We'll do that. And um, I got three leads on, on housing after that. Response from them? No, I didn't hear anything. I can't figure out for the life of me why you're being so nice to me. Yeah, you know, I, I got I got told by a. Uh, a friend of mine, she described it as a uh, someone who, um, you know, having a hard time solving their own problems, so they try and solve other people's problems for them, and it makes them feel better about their own situation. And um, oh, is that you? Uh, that that was her suggestion. Um, I um, I can certainly say I'm having a a hard time. Um, figuring out how to manage my own mental illness and um, you know who knows maybe this is uh, my way of distracting myself or just trying to do something productive because I don't know what to do about my own situation right now well, well I, say, I don't know if I told you or not I'm, I'm, I'm a uh, Christian and uh, ever since my mom's ever since both my parents stuff, I've become closer and deeper in my faith and uh and, you know, regardless of what happens to me, it's, I, I, I view with what, what you're doing as divine providence and interceding in my life, no, 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 no matter what the outcome is. So that's what, I, that's what I look at it as. And I know you don't exactly believe in divine providence, but I just want to know that's the way I look at it. And so the next day I, I got up and I, I packed all my, my film gear and uh, I headed out towards Juliet and um, yeah, I think I called Jeff beforehand to let him know I was on my way. And 
I was maybe five, ten minutes down the road. Um, I was on the highway, and something happened in the middle of my drive when I just, I was like, what the fuck am I doing? Um, something, like, clicked over in my head, and um, I pull off the highway, and I called Jeff, and I, I told him, I, I lied to him and said that, like, my car was... Um, I don't know something was wrong with it and I wasn't going to be able to get there um, I think I just needed more time to process my own feelings about everything that had gone on and I you know I don't know what the, the, the catalyst was or, or what but it just something just hit me while I was driving and um, I don't know what it was that that made me stop I wish I had a, a better answer for that um, you know I was just I think after putting all of this time in um, I don't know maybe it just kind of kind of came to a head and I realized like um, you know what I realize now which is that this was kind of a distraction from um, helping myself or, or helping others help me and um you know, I never, I never talked to Jeff after this. I don't think maybe, maybe once or twice. And um, you know, I haven't listened to these phone calls in a, a really long time, and it's kind of, kind of tough to listen to to hear him say, um, you know, that I was this kind of like symbol of like divine providence, and he was overwhelmed by like my kindness and even though you know I think like not not going out there and you know trying to help myself out was probably the right thing it kind of it kind of hurts to to hear that back and I, I can't help but feel a little bit like um, um, like I had abandoned Jeff um, But, you know, in any case, um, I spent, the, the, you know, the better part of the next year um, allowing other people into my life. I, I joined a, an outpatient program, and I, um, I went into it wanting to, like, really, uh, uh, <laughs> like, burn the place down. And, you know, because I was fed up after all of this. And um, I, uh, I, I left the program... Um, 14 months later, really feeling like it had, it had changed my life. You know, I, I feel very lucky. Um, but yeah, I still, I still think about Jeff from time to time. I think a lot lately because, you know, a lot has, uh, changed for me recently in regards to kind of, I guess, my journey through all of this and kind of like thinking about mental health and, and psychiatry and, um, you know, very recently experimenting with going off my meds, which I think is kind of what prompted, um, wanting to do this whole project to begin with. But, uh, like I said, I'll, I, I, you know, I think I'll do more of these, um, to kind of add some more context for the, uh, the before and the after and my thoughts since, but, um, there was kind of one last thing I, I wanted to drop in here, which was that, um, there was something that Jeff told me that I always thought was a lie, actually, and it popped into my head while I was doing this, 
Um, he told me about a date that he had gone on, and it had actually gone well. This was, I don't know, maybe a, within the few previous years of me meeting him, where he told me about a date he went on after his mother died, and um, he, he, when he told the, the girl that he was a virgin, she laughed at him and made fun of him and went and posted on his uh, his Facebook. I got into his Facebook somehow, and I, I wasn't really buying it. And um, Anyways, I thought of that, and it just kind of hit me. It was like, oh, you know, I, had, I know Jeff's full name. Like, I should look him up on Facebook. And uh, I did. I found him, and he... Um, I was just surprised to see that he was... Not surprised, but really... I was happy to see that he was, like, alive, you know, because every once in a while, over the past couple of years, I have Googled Jeff's name, and it's it's kind of a common name, so, like, I, I get a bunch of, like, financial advisors and attorneys in the area. Um, but, yeah, I saw his Facebook, and it seems like he has found some kind of community in, in the church, and, um, you know, while it still looks like he's struggling, I... I'm happy to see that he's alive and he has something. It kind of, like, it relieves a little bit of that, that guilt that I feel. But, um, yeah, we're going to leave it at that. Um, like I said, I will, I'll probably do more of these in the future. You know, let me know what you thought. Um, I, I wanted to do all this top, off the top of my head because I think, like, kind of reading the story, um, kind of peeking at it, going back and forth between reading and going to memory feels like a little bit monotone so I'm um you know might change things up a little bit for uh future parts of this series so um that's all I got for now goodbye